Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the news with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you, hopefully, with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you once again. Sean Spear, you and I are flying tandem this week. Uh, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, is away. Great to be in conversation with you. Same with you. Well, I want to start with just um, uh, some reflections on uh, this, I guess, what we only call a kind of historical watershed, a moment of transition from one era to uh, the next, from Elizabeth Rex to to Charles Rex. Um, Sean, we all have lived with this queen, you and I, for the entirety of our lives, printed on our money and printed on our constitution, our institutions. Do, do you have a kind of a recollection? I don't know, a, a memory where Elizabeth somehow resonated with your life with you uh that you can share with listeners yeah my um my mom's mom um whose name was alma nichols her, her maiden name was alma hawkins i always thought that was such a beautiful name um she passed away in 2009 and she was the real matriarch of our family and uh, i'm looking at a photo of her right now as i'm talking and i always thought she resembled um queen elizabeth and so you know, I could talk about, you know, the, you know, the, the beauty of our institutions of the constitutional monarchy and how she sort of personified our system of the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, at the risk of sounding a bit personal, um, she makes me think of my grandma, um, nice. um, who, I, who I love very much and, and, and miss dearly. Um, what, what, what about you, Rudyard? Yeah, just first to say to uh, listeners, check out Howard England's excellent uh, piece for us uh, on uh, the Queen's passing, um, really, t- again, tour de force by Howard. You can get that uh, right now at www.thehub.ca. Um, I had the good fortune uh, in the 2000s, actually, of meeting the Queen, uh, Sean. And again, it was one of those, it was in Calgary, it was one of those, you know, quite formalized events where you all line up and she comes down the receiving line and there's a bunch of etiquette, you know, you bow, you don't extend your hand. You have to wait for her to extend hers. You certainly don't speak to her unless she speaks to you. And again, you can think that's all kind of stupid, but I think it actually probably saves her as it should just, um, uh, some of the, the, the friction and wear of probably doing, I don't know, in the course of her life, tens of thousands of those green lines but so she came to me and by the time i was running a charity on canadian history and we're working a lot with veterans she said you know very nicely what do you do i explained that to her and then i i said your your majesty can i ask you a question and she the kind i've got the windsor steely gaze <laughs> the eyes narrowed a bit a kind of sense of whoa what is this guy gonna do and i said your majesty you know what is your most powerful memory from the second world war? And Sean, her eyes just lit up. They just went like they bugged out. And I thought, Whoa, what have I done here? And she proceeded to tell me this 
amazing, heartfelt story of how her greatest memory of the Second World War was being uh, in the palace and just conscious of the anxiety of her father, the king at the time, and the sense that everything had was hanging in the balance, that Hitler's invasion might succeed. Uh, the UK may be conquered. The bombs were dropping. Um, and, and just getting a sense for her, just that living history was a memory I will carry with me forever. And also just a reminder of a kind of toughness, maybe that we're lacking a little bit in our society today, an awareness of the necessity for sacrifice, of the need, let's say in the context of our confrontation with Putin over Ukraine. You know, these moments in history call on us. Uh, they re require us to rise to an occasion. And this was a woman who again and again in her life rose to those occasions, I think will always therefore remain an inspiration. Yeah, that's um, uh, beautiful words and well said. I, I would just say, um, one make one final point. You mentioned um, how fortunate we were to have um, Howard Anglin's um, thoughtful observations about the Queen's passing. I'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention um, that our poet and resident, uh, Jack Mitchell, also um, penned a, a beautiful poem um, today that ends with patience. Now we must endure a sadness long foreseen, relieved at least to be so sure God saved you, dearest queen, um, which you can similarly find um, at our site and every day um, in our email newsletter per diem, which you can sign up for. Um, um, you know, it, Jack's stuff is always great, um, but for moments like today, it was especially wonderful to have him as part of our um, uh, enterprise at, at the hub. Yeah. Well, let's go from the profound to the prosaic, uh, <laughs> Sean, and talk about uh, conservative uh, leadership race, which uh, we've been covering closely on the hub and which culminates uh, this weekend. Uh, anything in the tea leaves out there, Sean, that gives you a sense of kind of directionality? I mean, I think we all assume this will be a victory by Pierre Polyev. I think some question as to the scale of that, what it's going to look like. So let's just touch on that. And then I think maybe what we can add to the conversation, because that ground is being well combed by just about everyone is maybe what, what happens next? Uh, what if Pierre Polyev is leader, as we suspect, what does the next couple of weeks look like for him? What's on his docket? Yeah, just on the, the kind of immediacy of um, Saturday's uh, convention, which um, is still going to be held. There was some uh, discussion yesterday that um, that in light of the Queen's passing, the party might um, forego a physical event. But I think the intention now is to, to go ahead as planned, but to build in some programming um, uh, recognizing her passing. Um, a lot could be said that, you know, over the past several months um, about the race. But I, I think maybe the one point worth observing for uh, listeners is just the magnitude of of, of this uh, leadership cycle's vote. Um, something approximating 420,000 ballots will have been cast. To put that in some context, it was less than 175,000 conservative members who voted in the last leadership that uh, elected Aaron O'Toole. And if we go back to 2004, um, the leadership race that um, um, that established Stephen Harper as the party's first leader, only 97,000 ballots uh, were ultimately cast. So this is a magnitude more, which 
you know, ref reflects a number of different factors, including uh, obviously the energy in and around um, the, the Polyev campaign. But maybe just to make one final point, one wonders, Rudyard, given the, the number of votes uh, cast, uh, if this isn't a first ballot result, um, whether uh, the outcome may drag into uh, into Sunday morning as the party um, uh, struggles to get its arms around um, so many people participating in, in this year's race. There have been problems uh, in the past, most certainly. So we'll see if it's it's a clean, uh, well, I'm sure it'd be a clean vote, but a hassle-free one. Um, that's still the outstanding question. Well, let's talk about, Sean, the the week, the 10 days after the vote, let's assume uh, Pierre Polyev is elected leader. What are you going to be looking for to try to understand how we should interpret uh, the direction, the trajectory, the intent of his leadership of the party? Yeah, it's a great question. As um, those parliamentary watchers amongst our listeners will know, um, the national parliament set to return on September 19th. And there's an open question about whether the new leader, ostensibly Pierre Polyev, announces changes to um, the shadow cabinet that's been in place um, uh, for the past several months. Um, one of the challenges for Mr. Polyev, of course, is that he has, uh, Rudyard, a lot of um, caucus endorsements. Um, and so if he does refashion um, the shadow cabinet, as I think most anticipate, um, there'll be a, a few different considerations you'll have to account for. One, you know, how does he reward those who really supported him through this leadership? I think of people like Andrew Scheer, for instance, who um, was a, a really active uh, supporter, essentially, from day one. Um, two, how do you account for um, those in the current shadow cabinet roles? I'm thinking of people like Michael Chong, for instance, who have really distinguished themselves um, in, in the current parliament. And then lastly, how do you signal to um, the losing campaigns, but frankly, the, the, the broader Canadian public, the type of uh, leader uh, you're going to be, and ultimately the type of government that you want to um, lead. Uh, and so um, I, I think the, the shadow cabinet appointments will be the first insight into whether uh, uh, Polyev is leader is is any different um, than Polyev as leadership candidate? Um, so, so what's your bet there, Sean? Because you know the the rumor is that um, this is a guy who, uh, as other leaders have before, you know, demands um, a lot of loyalty and um, looks for people who um, are going to be there to support through thick and thin and have been there in the past uh, to support at earlier stages in his political career and even in this leadership that maybe where it didn't look like such a, a fait accompli. There's also a question, Sean, about the composition of that front bench and, and the various other assignments that come out of caucus in terms of a lot of Western support for Pierre Polyab. So what is your sense on you know, that loyalty test and how that could affect who's in there and also the regional test and what that looks like. Yeah. The only other test I would add is a kind of stylistic one. Um, you know, Pierre Polyev has a particular approach to politics in general, and in particular, um, his uh, kind of parliamentary style. He's prosecutorial. He's uh, aggressive. And it seems to me 
um, that he will be inclined towards people who adopt a, a, a similar kind of parliamentary style, which, um, which you know, I just say in parentheses, I've observed in, in recent weeks and months, some members of caucus uh, on their social media almost sort of aping, um, you know, a polyevian uh, uh, rhetorical uh, approach. And so I think you're, uh, I, all, all, all of those factors will be in play. I think this will be a, a leader and a kind of OLO, if I can put it that way, um, that will be inclined to, um, you know, the, the kind of traditional folks who've been around, in and around him. Remember, he's been elected since 2004. Um, I, I think you're right as well that um, managing kind of regional distribution will be key. But I really do think that in a lot of ways, he'll, he'll preference people who reflect the way that he approaches politics and in particular um, parliamentary debate and, 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 and holding the government account. It, what's your sense, Rudyard? Well, I, Sean, I want to keep going at you here because honestly, you've been in the trenches in a prime minister's office and you've got, I think, got a pulse on this party in a way that that I don't. So just humor me here for a second, because th this is one other key question that I want to ask you, because you've raised it before, which is the idea of a pivot. And there's a lot of speculation here that Pierre Polyev, you know, uh, needs to do a pivot because as I've written and, you know, you can check out my piece on the World Economic Forum criticizing Pierre Polyev for not um, coming out and and rolling back what's a, a kind of wacky policy that I think taps into some unintentionally possibly, but still taps in and it amplifies some kind of darker conspiracies around the World Economic Forum. That's just one example. You've got Bitcoin, you've got um, aggressive attacks on the central bank during a period of inflation, arguably where we need central bank credibility the most. So a guy who's clearly run a hot campaign, hot rhetoric, uh, hot, you know, hot, hot issues, hot approach. Does that continue, Sean? Is there, or is that classic pivot in the works? And if there's a classic pivot, to what extent is that a risk, right? A lot of disappointment, a lot of new members who come into the party amped up on vaccine mandates, the trucker convoy, the membership of this party, Sean, is, is you know, different than it was 12 months ago. Yeah, that's reflected in the the numbers that I shared earlier, just about how much it swelled compared to even um, leadership race two, two years ago. So I think that's a point well taken. Um, just in parentheses, I think, by the way, Roger, that's a, a serious risk for Daniel Smith, um, in the UCP race, where she's really raised the kind of temperature there and is poised to let down a lot of UCP members um, if and when she ultimately becomes leader. But on the Polyev question and this issue of of whether we'll see a pivot, I, I wonder if we started to see one in the past couple of days. I, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch um, his final campaign video. Um, it's worth watching. I, I, it was a message that it you know, broadly resonated with me. He went into... Um, greater detail than he has to date about his own personal experience and the and the extent to which that's um, a, a bit of a north star for him and his politics. Um, listeners will probably know um, that he is adopted, and you know that is a kind of key part of I think his personal identity, and and probably at some level Rudyard reflects the kind of uh, um, the kind of sense of outsiderism. That has been part of the kind of poly of political brand, even though, of course, he was elected in his his mid twenties. But he has uh, something of a, a kind of outsider instinct. I guess that's a long way of saying I I do hope he sort of invests in a narrative about 
um, the conditions that enabled someone of his circumstances to become leader of the official opposition and 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 have the the potential to become the prime minister of a G7 country. I would just say that um, not only would I find that message kind of hopeful and aspirational, it also uh, it also reflects uh, the kind of Polyev political edge as well, because it's an obvious contrast and juxtaposition with the prime minister, who, of course, was born on on third base. And, you know, truth be told, mm -hmm. uh, would have been just fine, irrespective of the choices that he's um, made in his life. So I, I think it that message um, is one that can um, serve a, a few different purposes uh, mm -hmm. for him as leader. Yeah, my final comment on this is it's just it's remarkable to think that at a period where the country faces real economic challenges from inflation to some job numbers that came out that seem to show, uh, you know, a slowing economy, uh, most likely headed to recession. We have a, a war that took a in Europe that took a dangerous turn this week, you know, amplified and escalated around energy. We now have the three leaders, uh, Will, as of next week, if Pierre Polyev wins, three leaders of the mainstream parties in parliament, none of them with any real-life experience outside of politics. Um, yes, the prime minister spent a bit of time as a teacher doing other things, it's fine, but nobody with any business experience, certainly nobody with any senior um, you know, roles uh, that extend beyond um you know, the halls and corridors of, you know, the Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa policy, legislative, you know, swamp. <laughs> and I just, you know, again, this is an old, an old lament, but you just have to feel that the, that the coin of the political realm at this moment, um, the quality, the timber of, of, uh, of the wood kind of supporting the F the, the structure, the edifice of our, our national debate uh, looks, looks a little weak to me compared to past generations. And I don't think that's just rose colored glasses, Sean. Yeah, I think there's, there's something there. Um, you, you know, even if you look at provincial governments across the country, the, the, the depth of the, the cabinet, um, or even the kind of parliamentary performance. I mean, one of the reasons that Polyev has distinguished himself is, frankly, he's a better parliamentary performer than a lot of these people who stand up and, you know, have trouble reading off of um, um, pre-drafted remarks and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it may be to wrap up this part of the conversation um, on a glasses slightly half full note, I, I think it does speak well of our society um, that uh, we're poised to have um, party leaders of our three major parties who are um, either um, Gen Xers or or millennials. I juxtapose that with um, with American political leadership, which is you know basically uh, all Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, Mitch Chuck Schumer, yeah. Mitch McConnell. It's a kind of gerontocracy. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Schumer is like a spring chicken compared to uh, the rest of the American political class. So um, I don't. 
I don't diminish your, your observation, but I, I do think there is something healthy about yeah. the, the generational change occurring in Canadian politics. No, here, here. Well, look, we're going to come right back uh, to the pod after this short break. And just a reminder to listeners that we are engaged in a little bit of a campaign at the Hub right now on um, the return to work. We've got a POV on it. Uh, we'd love yours too. So Please, uh, you know, get to us, um, visit our website. You can see all kinds of stories about the return to work. There's information there about how you can share your uh, reflections. Should we be heading back into the office? Are we losing something important uh, when we're not working together? Or has technology um, made this time different that we're going to remain remote or at least hybrid maybe in a way that we had never fully appreciated. Really appreciate listeners, your help uh, contributing to our reporting on this important issue, which will continue over the next couple of weeks. Back after this break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. Wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griff is here, Executive Director of the Hub. Uh, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, is away this week. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Sean, on the back half of the show, uh, I want to jump on a plane and fly with you across the Atlantic to Europe. Uh, it's been a um, monumentous week there. It all began last Friday with Vladimir Putin announcing officially the closure of the Nord Stream pipeline, effectively off uh, the gigajoules of energy that flow through Russia's natural gas pipelines into the major European economies to heat homes and more importantly, uh, power a lot of European industry. We've seen, Sean, this week, um, an extraordinary response on the part of many European governments, from the UK to Germany, uh, a response that is involving direct subsidies first to consumers and now many governments talking about similar caps and subsidies to their industrial sectors to effectively limit um, uh, the bottom line effects, the costs of, of having to source energy from other sources, which is causing, again, higher prices. We all know the story. But Sean, I'm just struck that every crisis we face in the West, whether it's the great financial crisis, the COVID crisis, or now this energy crisis, the response is the same. And it's to engage in a massive uh, debt-funded uh, subsidy program, uh, either, you know, income replacement in the case of COVID or now, you know, uh, energy replacement. And I get that some of this has to happen. You have to get through the winter. You can't have people freezing in their homes or industry shuttering itself. But I'm just struck at, again, there's no means testing here. It's a chicken in every pot. It seems awfully uh, convenient for the incumbent 
politicians, uh, and again, funded all through more borrowing on top of all the debt, the trillions now of euro debt that accumulated around the GFC, the pandemic. You just have to wonder how long can we play out this string? How long can we kick this can down the road until we court some even bigger risks? Yeah, what, what strikes me about the announcements that we've seen over the uh, past seven days or so is the extent to which they are trying to blunt the symptoms of the of the problem without actually addressing the cause. We continue to have politicians across Europe um, committed to the goal of of net zero emissions and you know moving ahead with um, um, shutting down nuclear investments in nuclear energy. Um, conventional oil and gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it seems to me, as you say, Rudyard, a more honest and um, and kind of realist um, response to these developments would be to kind of reckon with the trade-offs between um, legitimate and important environmental goals um, and broader economic and geopolitical considerations. Um, I'll turn it to you in a minute because... Um, you know, well, I might have some comparative advantage on conserv insider conservative politics. This is your um, ballywick. But I'll just say one of the um, things that I regretted about the Trudeau government's environmental policy soon after it came to office in, in 2015 was its tendency to describe the environment and the economy going hand in hand as if there was no um, trade-offs or, or without the need to sort of think critically about uh, about those trade-offs. And I think that short-circuited um, a debate that we need to have as a society about how we ought to think about um, these, these, these types of, of trade-offs. And then, of course, as soon as an environmental policy bites, because the public hasn't been socialized um, to understand that there are costs associated with advancing these environmental goals, governments have to scramble to try to um, blunt the impact of, of, of those costs. And, and so, you know, a, a common theme on this podcast and, and indeed your Twitter account um, is the need for real leadership. And it, it seems to me there's few places where leadership is more needed in being kind of transparent and honest about how we're going to grapple with the trade-offs between the environment, the economy, and now in the case of Europe, geopolitics, because of course, um, these energy, this energy crisis is really um, influencing how Europe is is dealing with um, Putin's invasion. So I guess with all that, let me turn it to you um, because I, I know you have strong views about, about all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for people to understand this week is you know, I think the media kind of missed the story or you know, they focused on um, the magician's uh, hands and not the, the rabbit about to emerge from the hat. What do I mean, Sean? Well, I mean that this was an escalation of the war. Many of us were wondering how it would escalate. Uh, I thought personally, maybe it would escalate on the battlefield. Maybe we would see allegations of the use of a chemical or biological weapon. And instead, I think as Putin's war effort has stalled and uh, he is now facing probably bigger existential risks and worries about the impact of a failed uh, invasion of Ukraine on his own leadership, he is now, uh, in a sense, um, bet the farm. And he's bet the farm to not simply deny uh, Europe energy that it needs to get through the winter, but I think, Sean, to attack uh, 
the overly financialized, debt-addled, and um, the entire economic model that much of the West and Europe is really the the poster child for this has been running since the great financial crisis. You know, what do I mean? I mean, central bank intervention into economies that now uh, to, in Europe, if you could imagine it, the ECB is eight, $9 trillion of government, corporate bank and other debt on its balance sheet. It has manipulated interest rates lower than the true borrows of all these various governments, the pigs, Italy, Greece, Spain, you name it, much of their banking sector. And that all okay. Uh, it, it almost it seemed almost the right response during, during COVID to prevent another financial crisis. But what's happened now is that Putin has put his finger exactly on a, a real pain point West uh, and I'll post it to the show notes today. There's a speech that Putin gave in the spring uh, at the St. Petersburg Economic Summit. There's a lot of it you can ignore, but we often don't get Putin uh, you know, unfiltered through our own media. Uh, it's a speech worth reading, and it has one quote that really struck me, and I tweeted it out. It, it runs like this, Sean. Again, very Russian here, so you have to bear with me and kind of unpack it. it. It says, this is Putin speaking last spring, quote, the economy of mythical entities is inevitably being replaced by the economy of real values and assets. And what does he mean there, mythical entities? He means, in a sense, this whole uh, chimera of, of, of the Western economic model since the great financial crisis, which is to uh, have a zero cost of capital for everything and anything so that any business can access capital to pay debt, to pay salaries or whatever, because central banks and others have chosen to manipulate the true price of capital and to allow debt to GDP in all of our economies to reach all-time historic highs. And I guess my final point here, Sean, is like, I, I, I don't want to militarize everything, but it we have to understand that the economic choices we've made in this very peculiar economic experiment that we've been involved in for the last decade and a half of massive monetary manipulation of the real economy, it has now become a security risk. This is not just a, a fun experiment. The kids can run you know, at central banks around the world to genie up growth in a, yes, in a, a disinflationary environment that we had after the great financial crisis. A lot of these things had to happen. I'm not denying that, but we have to understand that now with Putin, this is an existential fight and he has jammed his fist into that open wound of Europe, which is its indebtedness, its sclerotic growth and a financial model that isn't, out of the woods in terms of the risk of collapse. There's a reason why the euro traded below the US dollar this week. There's a reason why the British pound is trading at levels relative to the US dollar of 1985. It's reflecting a global judgment about those economies, about their credit risk, about their inability to deal with inflation. Don't be naive that Putin has opened a potent new front in this war, and a lot of the advantages are with him not with us.
And the only thing I would add um, to those insights, which I think are on the money and um, and kind of profound, uh, Rudyard, is that uh, while we've been pursuing the experiment that you describe, uh, we've created a kind of regulatory environment um, that is actually quite liberal when it comes to um, the intangible economy. Um, so if you want to create an app or you know you want to create a new internet company or whatever, fill your boots. Um, but if you want to do something in the physical, real, tangible economy, like develop natural resources, um, like build um, new forms of energy, um, like um, uh, create a, a new manufacturing capacity in areas of uh, strategic um, productive uh, uh, capacity. Well, forget it. We've uh, tied our economy up um, in red tape. Um, these are self-inflicted choices that in, if you look at it in kind of hindsight, if these choices were done to us, imposed by, on us by our enemies, we would view them as acts of war. Um, and yet this kind of uh, one-two punch, as you say, of loose money on one hand um, and regulatory morass on the real economy on, on the other hand, are imposing real economic costs. And uh, as you say, Rudyard, increasingly um, geopolitical and national security ones, which I suppose comes back to the point I was making earlier. Uh, you know, this is a moment for leadership. This is a moment for a kind of realism um, to kind of end the, uh, the experiment that you've outlined uh, and uh, reason with the public about um, some of the choices that we're going to need to make in order to uh, uh, protect our economies and, and protect our national interests. Yeah. Again, just everybody think about that quote of Putin's, the economy of mythical entities is inevitably being replaced by the economy of real values and assets. And I get that Putin's talking up his own book, his own commodity and energy reserves. But there's a reason why we have inflation is that people want those things, right? Okay. They want that stuff. It's there. There's more demand than there is supply. Last time I looked at the NASDAQ, you know, cloud stocks are down 50%. Like people don't want that stuff. Yes. Is it important? Is it innovative? Absolutely. But the reality is that the financial model we ran of zero cost capital manipulated by central banks and easy monetary policy created a huge speculative bubble. It ramped up economic inequality. Arguably, it fueled a lot of the divisions in our society, which are preventing us to unite together to, to face off against the existential threats that Putin's war in Ukraine means for the entire liberal international order. So I just I end, Sean, just by thinking back to the Queen and my interactions with her. You know, there was a generation and a woman who understood that at a certain moment, sacrifice was required, that the stakes were existential. And I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's the blitz right now and we all have to go down in bunkers. But what I am saying is that we're just such a narcissistic society. We want our cake and to eat it too. We want to fight a war against Ukraine and feel against Putin in Ukraine and feel fabulous about it and thump our chests. But whoa, when it comes to paying more for energy or it comes to actually understanding that inflation is a consequence of the war that 
we are rightly pursuing against Russian aggression, there's zero appetite, Sean, for any sacrifice for anybody but uh, everybody who wants to have their you know, late model European card, wants their cottage, uh, I don't know, wants to take the regular family vacation to the Caribbean. Like, I don't know. I, I worry that we've lost touch with the lesson of Queen Elizabeth, which was uh, there are moments, not every moment, we don't have to put a hair shirt on all the time, but there are moments where we're called upon by duty. And I just feel our politicians, well, name me a politician who's given us that speech on the war. Guess what? You have to sacrifice. Guess what? We're in an existential fight with Russia. Guess what? It's going to be painful. It's going to require you to do less or make more with what you have. And we're not going to immiserate future generations by adding to the, you know, the debt bomb that we, whose fuse we already lit at the GFC and then, and then COVID. It just, I don't know, Sean, I, I just feel like we're, we're children living in a kind of magical kingdom, deluded about the reality of the world and our own. Yeah, maybe I'll just uh, finish by saying, you know, I think the connection to the queen here is a recognition that the, the kind of institutions um, and the quality of life that they've given us um, are not something to take for granted. They require every generation um, to step up and affirm them and protect them. And, um, and you know, that's something I thought about in the past couple of days. You know, there's the famous Burke quote. I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but that society is a, a kind of intergenerational relationship between those who came before us, those who are here now, and those who will come in the future. And, and that involves choices. And it involves um, people seeing themselves not in a, uh, 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 in a kind of situation of immediate gratification, but recognizing um, that we need to take a, a, a longer view. And, you know, I think that's something that we've um, called for at the hub and, and um, one that um, is needed um, now more than ever. And hopefully the, the Queen's um, model of leadership uh, is an inspiration for European leaders and leaders around the world to um, re reflect that. Um, yeah, here, here, here. We need wartime leadership right now. And we need people to tell it like it is and make people understand that if we want to win this war, if we want to preserve the liberal international order, sacrifices will be required. Well, look, let's wrap the show there. Sean, again, just a pitch to our listeners to check out our uh, return to work, the return to the office series that we're running. You get it right now on our website, triple W thehub.ca. Uh, every article has uh, links so you can either anonymously connect with us and share a story of uh, the disaster that is the return to the office in your workplace. Um, or look, maybe you push back. Maybe you say, look, you guys at the hub, I think one person we published on Friday said to pull our you-know-whats out of our you-know-whats uh, <laughs> and that everyone was much happier at home and you know, we were uh, regressive and uh, discriminatory towards a variety of different groups, Sean. Uh, the return to office is now an official act of discrimination. Anyway, I'll let people read that commentary. We're all about the debate at the hub. So join in, send us your comments, your reflections to uh, the return to the office. Good, the bad, the ugly. 
uh, we want it all. Sean Spear, look forward to connecting with you next Friday for another edition of the Hub Roundtable. Till next week, Rudyard. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable podcast at The Hub. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, your executive director. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, the editor-at-large at The Hub, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Aidan Moscovich, intern at The Hub. If you can access a YouTube version of this audio on YouTube, simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get it on our website, www.thehub.ca. Look for the Friday Roundtable. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations for you, featuring some of the world's sharpest minds, brightest thinkers, and the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite audio program. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. We'll do it all again next week. Bye-bye.